Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. Today, we are pleased and honored to have with us one of Singapore's, indeed, the world's most influential scholars and statesmen, Kishore Mahobani. He's a senior advisor and professor in the practice of public policy at the National University of Singapore. He has written a number of books that have pushed the boundaries of scholarship on world order and the West, including Can Asians Think?, the Great Convergence, and just this year, his latest book, Has the West Lost It? A Provocation. Prior to his teaching role at NUS, he served for many years in the Singaporean Ministry of Foreign Affairs, eventually rising to the post of Permanent Secretary and serving two stints as Singapore's Permanent Representative to the United Nations. Kishore, welcome to Tea Leaves. We're thrilled to have you with us today. My pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Great. So let's just get started. Um, you've seen dramatic developments uh, in the United States with the election of President Trump. Um, many longstanding policies of the United States in Asia are in flux. Lots of questions about trade, uh, questions about our alliances, and perhaps most fundamentally, the changing nature of the U.S. relationship with China. What's your take on all of this? Well, I think to, I would say that we are genuinely shocked. Uh, we've got used in Asia to dealing with an America with all its ups and downs, uh, an America that was fundamentally stable and predictable, especially on long-term yeah, issues. You know, you may have bumps up and down, but you more or less could rely upon the United States for a certain set of policies. I think with, with the... Arrival of Trump, he's changed some, made some fundamental changes. And I think the region is still reeling from the changes. And in fact, some of the changes, as you know, we thought that the Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Agreement was a geopolitical gift uh, to America from the region. And yes, we just don't understand why he walked away from it. Because it's actually in America's national interests to stay in the TPP if you want to make sure that in the long run, as China's influence grows, and it will grow for sure, you still have a very strong foothold in the region. So to reject that sort of violated what I would call the rules of strategic common sense. And that's, that's a kind of puzzlement that his actions have created. So in this current environment, with some unpredictability, as you describe in Washington, and a China that I would agree with you mm -hmm. is asserting its interests and mm -hmm. its interests will only grow. Mm -hmm. Facing this challenge, and ultimately I appreciate and understand that at the core of what Asia wants to avoid mm -hmm. is to make a choice, right? Mm -hmm. But in this environment, it looks increasingly likely that countries are going to have to make some hard mm -hmm. choices. How does that play out? Well, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, all the countries want to avoid making a choice because it'll be a very painful choice. And to express the dilemma very simply, we know that the United States will be around in Asia for the next 100 years. But we also know for sure that China will be around for the next 1,000 years. 
So if you force countries to choose, you put them in a, a very difficult position. But here I actually believe that most of the countries in the region believe that you don't have to make this choice. It is actually possible to have good relations with the uh, United States and good relations uh, with China. And that's what uh, all the countries are striving to do, including your closest allies like Australia. <laughs> and Australia will be a kind of a bellwether country. And I tell you that even a country which is as close to the United States as Australia will be put in a very uncomfortable position if you ask them to choose. Kishore, I want to uh, ask you about something you said about how you were surprised that President Trump withdrew from TPP and you're surprised about some of the actions that he took. But in your book and in your writings and, and in your public remarks, you've talked about how this is part of the cycle also of decline, perhaps, and that maybe Trump is just a product of a cycle that we're going through. So uh, can you say a little bit more about that? Or should we really be surprised? Or have you been kind of predicting this for some time? Well, I, yes, uh, I, I, I've been predicting for a long time uh, that the relative positions of uh, the Asia and the West will change. Mm -hmm. And just to make one important point here, historical point, from the year one to the year 1820, for 1800 out of the last 2000 years, the two largest economies of the world have always been those of China and India. Right. So it's only in the last 200 years that Europe has taken off and North America has taken off. So the past 200 years of world history, if you view it against the backdrop of the past 2,000 years of world history, have been a major historical aberration. Yeah, I saw you use that word aberration. That's fairly provocative. Uh, no, it's, it, it's, just, it's actually not provocative. It's just a fact. And it's very unusual for China and India to go from a situation where they had 50% of the world's GNP in 1820 to have less than 5% by 1950. Now, that was an aberration. Mm -hmm. If you look at it, what their share was. So, But the return to the normal, by the way, means that the relative share of United States and the relative share of Western Europe goes down, but the absolute GNP of the United States doesn't go down, the absolute GNP of Europe doesn't go down. And in fact, in this new world, it creates tremendous opportunities for United States and Europe to also grow and prosper uh, with the rest of Asia. And, and if you don't, just give you one more statistic. Sure. If you look at the size of the a, uh, the global middle classes is going to grow from 1.8 billion in 2010 to 3.2 billion in 2020, and then up to 4.9 billion in 2030. So more than half the world's population is going to enjoy global middle class living standards. And that creates tremendous opportunities for American companies and European companies. That's a, that's a much more optimistic uh, view. But you're, I want to we're going to talk about your new book, How the West Lost It. But mm. one of your earlier books was also fairly uh, provocative title, Can Asians Think? And again, you, uh, I, I think, fairly deliberate to get people's attention. But you were lamenting this fact that Asia had been surpassed by mm. the West, Europe, and the United States. 
and they were uh, uh, kind of witnessed this uh, go past them in these last uh, 100, 200 years and didn't do anything to, to stop it. Yeah. Uh, tell us about that book and yeah. the kind of reaction you got from from your colleagues and others in yeah. Asia. Were they uh, upset by what you had written and uh, challenged them on? No, not at all. In fact, that book of mine is still on sale after 20 years. <laughs> yeah. And the 20th anniversary edition of the book just came out. You can get it at Changi Airport in Singapore. <laughs> uh, no, I think the Asians liked very much that book. Uh, because it actually forced Asians to ask themselves, why has Asia fallen behind? Mm. What did Asia do wrong? And I think if the Asians don't ask themselves, because for example, you know, I'm ethnically Indian. Mm. And you know, if I look back at my ancestors in India, in the 19th century, 300 million Indians were ruled effortlessly by 100,000 Englishmen. Mm. How do 300 million Indians subjugate themselves to 100,000 uh, Englishmen? I mean, it's almost inconceivable today, but it happened in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. So something clearly had gone wrong in the Asian psyche. And I think it's very important for if the Asians are going to come back, and they are coming back, and they're going to play a bigger and bigger role in the world today, it's important for them to honestly understand what they did right and what they did wrong uh, in the past. And I also emphasize in the same book that the reason why the Asian countries are coming back, Asian societies are coming back, is because they're learning from the West. Mm. So I always mm. say that the Asian uh, countries need to send a big thank you note to the West for being the first civilization to successfully modernize and transform itself because if the West had not modernized, the rest of the world would not have done so. Yeah. You mentioned your upbringing. Uh, hmm. You have an amazing passage in your in in your book where you say. As a child, I was part of a Hindu immig Indian immigrant family in Singapore. My neighbors were Muslim uh, families. The society was predominantly Chinese. I was born a British subject, became a Malaysian citizen, and two years later in 1965, assumed a Singapore national identity, and my education was always in English. Uh, you say you've traveled through East and West, mm -hmm. and these experiences really must have formed such an incredible vantage point to have yeah. these kinds of observations. Yeah, in fact, I, I now looking back on my life, I realized that um, I, I, I'm in a somewhat privileged position because even though I'm a Hindu Sindhi, uh, and they came from Sindh, which is now part of Pakistan, my name, Mahbubani, comes from an Arabic word, Mahbub. And when I, went to, when I went, learned to write Sindhi as a child, the script is an Arabic script. So as a, as a Hindu Sindhi, I felt affiliation with the Islamic world in West Asia. And then as a Hindu Sindhi, of course, I felt affiliation with the Hindus in India and with nine out of the ten Southeast Asian states which have a Hindu base uh, to them. And at the same time, even when I traveled to Northeast Asia, to Japan, to Korea, or even to China, you know, when I see a Buddhist temple 
you know, I feel at home also mm-hmm. because it's very much affiliated with my Hindu heritage. Sure. And I say this because when people say you can't talk about being in an Asian, I say, listen, I have traveled to all corners of Asia and wherever I go, I find something there that I'm personally connected with. Mm. And to, to tell you an amazing story, the, probably the country that is the most different in some ways is Philippines, you know, because it's got a Catholic heritage. And yet, when the Philippines hosted the East Asia Summit, they opened the East Asia Summit with a performance from the Mahabharata. Mm, Isn't that something? (laughs) Isn't that something? It shows you how the old interconnectivity between Asia was very deep. It was cut off by 200 years of Western colonial rule, but it's going to come back. Mm-hmm. Kishore, that's very powerful. Um, so Kishore, you, you earlier referred to Australia as kind of a hinge state. I always think of Singapore actually playing that role as the, it's not the canary of Asia, but it plays the role uh, often as Singapore goes, mm. uh, many things um, uh, uh, translate accordingly across Asia. So I, I have a question for you. I, I think no country has more effectively navigated this complexity of the relationship between the United States and China. You've managed in both circumstances to speak truth to power. Um, I would say there are some that believe over the last couple of years, because of your strong support for TPP, um, your adherence to uh, a stronger American role in Asia, that you may have um, incurred the, the unhappiness of the new leadership in Beijing. And what we've seen in the last couple of years is China prepared to make clear to countries in Asia when they're displeased. We've seen you know, boycotts against the Philippines, uh, Vietnam, more recently against South Korea. The one thing that I'm surprised by, I think sometimes people anticipate that China will either directly or carefully or indirectly uh, take steps against Singapore to make clear uh, certain elements of displeasure. To date, we really haven't seen that. Um, Why is that? And is it coming? Or has Singapore found the secret sauce that allows it to basically avoid the downsides of being on the wrong end of diplomacy with either one of the great powers? Well, I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, Singapore will also be put in a very difficult position uh, if it is asked to choose uh, between the United States and China. Because, I mean, if you look, for example, at our defense, uh, we have a very close defense relationship uh, with the United States that goes back decades. You know, we host a lot of U.S. Navy ships and, uh, and so forth. Uh, and of course, our, in, in economic terms, we are equally close to uh, U.S. and China. In fact, the U.S. has a trade surplus with Singapore, and we are actually very happy to have a trade deficit with the United States. <laughs> We're not uncomfortable with that at all because we get fantastically good products like Boeing aircraft uh, from America. And and uh, of course, the other thing, but the point that is the most complicating factor is that 75% of the population of Singapore is Chinese. And so it's very hard to imagine politically for any Singapore government to be stuck in a position where it is seen to be anti-China. Now, the Singapore government uh, actually has been quite brave 
uh, in many ways in taking very independent positions uh, from time to time, you know. But at the same time, he's got to also be sensitive to what is going on today. Mm-hmm. And so far, uh, I would say the, the the government of China understands the unique position of Singapore. And in fact, also understands that Singapore has got to demonstrate that even though its population is 75% Chinese, it is not a satellite of China. And that's why there's an important historical fact to mention here, that when the ASEAN countries began to normalize their ties with China following Kissinger's visit to China in 1971, uh, Singapore was the last country to normalize relations with China and actually did it 20 years later in 1991. <laughs> so that to send a signal that we have no special ties uh, with China, even though our population is 75% Chinese. So this is an existential dilemma for Singapore, but I would say overall the Singapore government has been very skillful mm. at managing this. You're a keen observer of China. Mm. Um, You've uh, written and spoken eloquently for years about the trajectory that China is on. Mm. One of the interesting dimensions of President Xi Jinping is that over the last five years, he has uh, essentially dismantled many elements of collective leadership that Deng Xiaoping and others put in place. Um, And we're now in a situation where, in many respects, President Xi enjoys or wields uh, the kind of singular power that we normally associate with a leader like Mao Zedong. Mm. So I I guess the question I'd ask for you, uh, I'd have for you, uh, Kishore, is, is that healthy, uh, given the complexity and the challenges that China is facing? And where is this going to take China over time? Well, I, I think it's important that the, when, when I see how the Americans try to read what Xi Jinping is doing, quite often what Americans do is put on American political lenses and try to understand what's happening in China. And I'm actually surprised by the massive wave of disappointment in America, the feeling that, oh, Xi Jinping let us down We were collaborating. We were hoping that China would open up and become more open and liberal and so on and so forth. And you see, they let us down. See, this is this is Keyshore taking a little jab at at the (laughs) co-host Kurt Campbell, and he's 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 doing this situation that he doesn't think I know it, but I know it. Thank you. Continue. No, 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 it's more than you. Come on, Kurt. It's more than you. You know, you know that it's much larger uh, uh, than you. Uh, uh, Others have said this to me too. Uh, but the, the key thing to do to, to recognize is that at the end of the day, Xi Jinping has a very deep knowledge of Chinese history and background. And he has to deal with the Chinese political and economic situation as he finds it. So when Xi Jinping took power, he was in a very paradoxical position because on the one hand, the Chinese economy had performed brilliantly in the 12 years before he took over. You know, China was growing at almost 10% a year from 2000 to 2010. But on the political front, he inherited a real mess because corruption had grown significantly while China was growing significantly. And more dangerously, there was factionalism growing within the Chinese Communist Party 
And people like Bo Xilai and Cho Yong Kang were trying to challenge uh, the central control of the party. So I think he realizes that if China is going to fulfill its historical mission of trying to come back as a modern, developed state, the one thing that would actually hinder that goal would be if China fails to retain political stability. And he also knows throughout Chinese history, if you look for even over the past 2,000 years, China has more often been disunited than united as a country. And so what keeps China together always is strong central control. And the, the, the paradox, you see, if you look at in terms of the political impulses of America, in America, the political impulse is always to try and maximize the liberty of the individual, because if you maximize the liberty of the individual, the society is better off, and it works for America. But in the case of China, when the center becomes weak, you get chaos and things start to fall apart. So strong central control is something that is, in a sense, wired into the Chinese body politic, and it works very well uh, for, for China. So the question, therefore, the fundamental question you need to ask is that is Xi Jinping accumulating this power for himself or is he accumulating this power to keep strong central control so that China keeps growing and successfully modernizing? Now, we, as you know, we, we have only uh, seen the first part of what he's doing. My own view is that I, I would give him the benefit of the doubt and I would say he's trying very hard to save China and not trying to accumulate power just for himself. That's mm. interesting. A, a common friend of ours and someone you know uh, well, a uh, respected scholar, Joe Nye, uh, in a review of, of your new book, says well, the West is an easy target for Kishore, uh, but China gets off scot-free. And when I hear you talk about giving China the benefit of the doubt, mm. Uh, I could make the counter case that there's plenty of evidence over the last mm. five or six years uh, where you wouldn't give China the benefit of the doubt, that this is about the accumulation of power for a few select individuals. This is about aggressive behavior, a flouting of, mm. of the international rules. And I just wonder how you, why, mm. why you choose to give mm. China the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Well, I, and maybe I, maybe this is me coming at it with my <laughs> Western political uh, lens on. Yeah, I, I must say I'm glad you mentioned Joe Nye's review of my book in the Financial Times. It's a very unusual review. He said he 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 loved the substance, but he didn't like the cover. And then he spent the whole review talking about the cover and not about the substance, <laughs> which is rather strange. Interesting. But, you know, on the point about giving uh, China a pass, I, I mean, I can't remember everything I say in Hester West lost it, but I've just a year before, I come up with a book called The ASEAN Miracle about uh, Southeast Asia and, and the world. And if you read the uh, section on China and Southeast Asia, you will find I talk about all the mistakes that China has made. And I certainly is assertive behavior in the South China Sea uh, has led to a backlash uh, against China, has led to a wariness about China in, 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 in uh, Southeast Asia. So they have made uh, mistakes. I mean, they're not a, a perfect uh, uh, country. And, and, I th and I think it also, uh, it also serves Chinese interests 
to understand the mistakes uh, that they have made because quite often they are not even aware uh, why why this backlash uh, is occurring. For example, you know, in, in one of my previous books I mentioned, for example, you know, when you have the famous, uh, Kurt knows more, more about this than I do, the famous fishing boat incident mm-hmm. where China put tremendous pressure on the Japanese to finally release the fishing boat captain and Japan of course, succumb and re- released it. And then foolishly, after slapping Japan so much, they asked Japan for an apology. So I said, how can you do that? You already humiliated mm-hmm. Japan by getting them to release the fish, fishing boat captain. And of course, it was a mistake for the Japanese to arrest the fishing boat captain in the first place. <laughs> Never mind. But then after getting achieving that, they asked Japan for an apology. And I said, if you do that, clearly creates a tremendous anger and anxiety in Japan. So that was a huge mistake. Mm. So China has made mistakes. I mean, and as far as I know, almost every country in the world makes mistakes. Kishore, I want to ask you two two questions. One um, tactical and the other strategic. Mm. The first is you will have seen that really for the first time, um, uh, international authorities have arrested an alleged Chinese spy in Europe and extradited him to the mm. United States. Now, I can imagine uh, a potential that this will create enormous anxiety in China. And we just mm. don't know how China will cover it if they mm. cover it in their media, then it's going to have enormous implications. And, mm. you know, I think it could lead to another element of crisis in the U.S.-China relationship. So I'd like you to talk about that. But then my larger question really is, you know, I believe that the center of diplomacy and the center of global strategy is shifting and will shift fundamentally to Asia. Um, I'm curious, given your experience and your vision how will diplomacy and politics change? Hmm. So you could make an argument that for the last 50 or 60 years, and even before then, diplomacy was was prefaced on sort of Westphalian concepts and a uh, sense of history that had hmm. primarily European origins. If we shift to Asia, how is the conduct and the manner of engagement going to change as a reflection of a very different set of histories and experiences? So both of those questions. Uh, Well, I mean, both are are, are great questions. And let me address the second one first. Uh, You know, there's a very, uh, you touched upon a very important point because, you know, I mentioned that for the last 200 years, the West has been dominant. And the West has been dominant, not just economically, uh, but also in some ways intellectually and culturally. And therefore, Western domination created a global world with what I call Western chemistry. Now, frankly, with the return not just of China, China, India, Southeast Asia, and the largest economies in the world are going to be in Asia, the chemistry of the world is going to change. And so the methods that you use for example, in engaging the Europeans, right? And the Europeans tend to be very straightforward, legalistic, and look at the paper. 
But in Asia, it's about human relationships. Mm. Very much more important. Mm. In fact, contracts are less important. Personal trust is more important in Asia. So, so if you if you have diplomats from America who spend, let's say, all their time in Europe, then come to Asia and expect to do the same thing, then they'll be in for a culture shock. Right. And I think it's important to prepare for this new world. Now, many of the fundamental principles will not change. So, for example, I hope and pray that the United Nations Charter is not changed. The great thing about the UN Charter is that it creates a set of rules which are actually based on Western rules that have worked for the world. So these Western-based rules will continue and must continue and should continue. But the chemistry, how you apply this in diplomacy, is going to change very significantly. And that requires a lot of learning and intuition and so on and so forth. So that's what's going to change. Now, you're quite, I, I, this, this event you mentioned about what happened is too recent to be known. But, you know, it's interesting that many societies make a big fuss when they feel that they are spied upon. When everyone knows that virtually every major power in the world carries out spying. Yeah. And as you know, Snowden revealed an incredible amount of what is being done by this incredibly superior technological capability Kishore, of the United I, States. I, I accept that. That's not the element that I was asking you to comment on. Huh. I, I think the spying is absolutely accurate. Yeah. What I'm talking about is a Chinese citizen huh. has been taken in Europe and extradited to the United States yes. for criminal treatment. Huh. That's the question I'm asking you about, the fact that a Chinese national yeah. is going to be held and tried in the United States, apparently, and how China will respond to that. Not the question about, yeah. you yes. know, uh, shock that there's, you know, there's yeah. gambling going on in the casino, right? Yeah, yeah. No, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And I, and, I, and, I, and I think this will become a very difficult issue to solve. And in some ways, uh, you know, when I mentioned the uh, uh, fishing boat captain from Japan, uh, you saw how strongly the Chinese react uh, when their nationals are, are, are taken. And it's important to also uh, bear in mind that this is, this is a very delicate point because there's a lot of contestation about it in the United States. The, many Americans think that when the Chinese talk about the century of humiliation, they're just doing it for political purposes. I actually, since I grew up in a Chinese majority society, Singapore, I believe that they're not, that the, the century of humiliation actually is very deep and very powerful. So anything that reminds them of the past, of not being treated with respect, that I think triggers a very strong uh, emotional response. And that's why the point I made about the chemistry one part of this new chemistry is that we all have to understand each other's histories and understand what is it, what are the touch points that can be very difficult in the in the in the relationship. And and I think if 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 Western policymakers are not aware that this century of humiliation makes means a big deal to China, then there'll be problems. Hmm. Kishore, in your uh, writings. You are pretty tough on the United States, mm. not just Europe, but pretty tough on, on the mm. U.S. And I think Fareed Zakaria said you're the kindest uh, and smartest critic of the United States. And I, I, you know, from what all of your readings, it's it's incredible. It makes us all think. But I also 
want to just ask you about when we think about the 20th century and the 20th century we were taught in schools and lived through, it was very much a century of American sacrifice as well. And the hundreds of thousands of lives lost, the, um, you know, the building of international institutions, Mm -hmm. not seizing territory when Mm -hmm. we could have, but in fact, giving up uh, power so that others could actually be elevated. I I guess we, you know, maybe again, I'm coming at this from our Western training, but Mm -hmm. we see a different uh, America than perhaps the one that you Mm -hmm. describe in your books. And I'm trying to reconcile yeah. those two views. Well, I think, uh, you know, fortunately I had written many books and I one of the books I wrote was called Beyond the Age of Innocence, uh, Rebuilding Trust Between America and the World. And uh, if you, there's a chapter down there. And if I remember close, uh, carefully, the opening line of the chapter is, America has been the most benign great power mm-hmm. ever in the history of humanity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have put it on record <laughs> and I have a whole chapter <laughs> on how America has benefited the world. And the 1945 rules-based order from which Singapore and other Asian states have benefited so much from is an American gift to the world. In fact, most international law regimes are American gifts to the world. So there's a lot that America has gifted the world. And even today, you have 350,000 Chinese students studying in American universities and 160,000 Indian students studying in American universities. And it's quite stunning that American universities are, are, are transforming the global order in a very fundamental way. So there are lots of incredibly wonderful things that America has done for the world, which I have recorded. But as a friend of America, if I only just sing your praises <laughs> and don't point out how the rest of the world sees you, your, your flaws, then I'm not being a good friend. Yeah. You know? So that's I, my role as a friend, as they say. No, and one of the critiques you make, and, and we could talk all day about this, is on just our uh, inability to handle globalization and that you've, you've basically compared how other countries have done it. And mm. you've pointed out that retrenchment and withdrawing from the world and building walls is not the answer to globalization. Mm. There's another alternative. And mm. as, a, as a friend to the United States, I guess you're showing us what this other alternative is. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, uh, uh, paradoxically, uh, you know, I just went to see Carla Hills uh, an hour or two ago and I told her that one of the most stunning things that has happened in the world in recent times is that in 1950, two years after I was born, 75% of the world's population, 75% lived in extreme poverty. Today is less than 8%. Hmm. Why? Because America's globalization opened up the world and the countries that joined in international trade benefited and prospered. So the largest poverty reduction program in the world that we've seen in human history has happened because of the gift of American globalization. Mm. Kishore, we're going to have to end it on that very uplifting uh, note. And you've given us so much to think about. And I want to remind all of our listeners that your book has the West lost it, was just released. Uh, We encourage you all to check it out and and buy it as soon as you can. Yes, thank you, Kishore, and thank you all for listening. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, 
or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time on Tea Leaves. <laughs>